Well, howdy, Pastor Mark and my wife Grace here. Really, really honored and excited to get into a subject that is very important to us. Um, and if we had one word to describe the world right now, I think a good choice would be war. Yeah. We've got economic wars, we've got political wars, we've got cultural wars, we've got social wars. Literally, it is war on every single front. Uh, perhaps unlike any time that we have experienced in the history of our life, uh, generations previous to us endured various kinds and sorts of wars. But for many of us, this is the first occasion where we have really felt the battle intensity of war. And so what we wanted to talk about today was spiritual warfare in your family and your church family. And uh, all of this is based on the book, uh, Win Your War, that we wrote uh, together. And, uh, and we'll give away a free chapter online as well as some free copies uh, just to help folks learn. But to begin with, for the Christian, the concept of spiritual warfare is that there is one reality in two realms. There is the world that we see and the world that we don't see. Just like your body is two parts. You have a physical body that is seen and then you have an immaterial soul that is unseen. So your body correlates with this world where there is the seen realm of physical beings and actual physical conflicts. And then the unseen realm where spirit beings that are just as real as human beings are having conflict. And these two worlds uh, impact and affect one another positively and negatively. That's the whole concept behind the language in the Bible of spiritual warfare. And so what Paul says in Ephesians 6 is that our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but powers, principalities, and spirits. What he's saying is that in addition to the war that we see, there's a war behind the war, and that's the war that God sees, and that's the spiritual battle that has implications for everyone here on earth. And so we wanted to talk about how God is always trying to build and Satan is always trying to break, and also how everything that God creates, Satan is trying to counterfeit, and that ultimately the whole prayer and goal is to give you some insight for the battles that surround you and maybe even some of the battles that you find yourself in. And so uh, that being said, babe, maybe before we jump in, because we're going to talk about uh, the family of God, we're going to talk about the war on your marriage and family, and then the, the war that Satan has on the church family. Maybe just by way of introduction, tell them a little bit about your upbringing, uh, kind of your experience in ministry, and maybe just a little bit about us for those that don't know us, and then we'll jump right in. Yeah, I was raised in a pastor's home. I was the youngest of three girls, and we definitely saw a lot of spiritual warfare in our home and in our church. Um, the enemy always tries to divide, and so I was aware of spiritual warfare and what that looked like growing up. Um, I didn't always know how to combat that, um, so that's where writing this book and continuing to work through scenarios that we faced in our dating years, in our marriage um, was helpful to see that there is a spiritual battle for sure going on. Um, we have lots of examples that we talk about in the book, but I think as you share today, we'll share some of those as well because it's helpful to get a framework for what that looks like in day-to-day -day life. Well, and just so you know, if you're tuning in and thank you for joining us, uh, I'm a Bible teacher. I mean, you run women's ministry. Uh, I've been a senior pastor for about half my life. We're going to be 50 this year. I tend to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And when it comes to this issue of Satan, demons, spiritual warfare, we'll get into all of this. Um, there tends to be two reasons why people don't have a good biblical understanding. Number one is something called cessationism. And that is that the supernatural stuff kind of ended in the first century or sensationalism, we blame everything on Satan and demons and we don't take personal moral responsibility. And so what we're not saying is Satan doesn't work anymore. We're also saying that not everything is his fault. And the Bible holds both Satan and demons as well as men and women accountable for the decisions that we make. So that being said, um, could you read out of Job 38? And I wanna introduce the concept that God has one family that is comprised really of a spiritual family and a human family. It's two families that come together in one family reunion in the kingdom as God's total family. Maybe read for them Job 38, four through seven. 
Yeah, it says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So in Job 38, the context there is that God comes and he has a series of questions for Job and Job's in the middle of a spiritual warfare battle. He doesn't know it at the time. All he knows is his business is upside down, his family's getting attacked, family members are dying. I mean, his body is breaking out with lots of sickness and illness and he doesn't know. All he knows and sees is what's happening in the scene realm of his physical reality. And then the book of Job, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pulls back the curtain and we see the battle behind the battles. We see the war behind the wars. And that is that Satan has asked if he can attack Job and he in fact has. Well, Job has some questions for God. God reverses the tables in Job 38 and he asks Job a series of questions. And one of them is, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And he goes on to say, the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. And what he's telling Job is there's a lot you don't understand and don't see. And that's true for us as well. And so we need God to reveal reality to us as he did to Job. But what he's talking about there is before the world was made and before human beings were made to live on the earth, there were other beings, persons, who were conscious, aware, alive, and present. Here they're called the morning stars and the sons of God. And that language of sons indicates God's family. So God is a father, Jesus is a son. Much of the language in the Bible is about family. So God has a family in the seen realm, his human family, the church. God has a family in the unseen realm. This would be his divine, supernatural, spiritual family. So let me unpack this a little bit. This would include angels. Um, angels are sometimes referred to in the Bible as stars, just like stars are between you know, our planet, the earth, and heaven where God dwells. They would use the language of stars in the Bible to speak of angelic beings that are somewhere between us and God. Uh, Angels are mentioned some 300 times in the Bible. Roughly 90% of the books of the Bible speak of angels. We hear of, quote, innumerable angels, a thousand angels, 10,000 times 10,000. There are three angels in the Bible that are named Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. And then there's also categories of angels, archangels, commanders, cherubim, seraphim, guardian angels, and angels over the churches in Revelation chapter two and three. Each church has an angel that in addition to the human leader, there's a spiritual leader. In addition to the pastor, there is a divine being, an angel that is appointed to oversee the church according to Revelation two and three. Um, the Bible says in Revelation 13 too, that some of us have entertained angels and we weren't even aware. They just appeared as human beings and they were on divine assignment, sort of incognito, uh, undercover as it were. In addition to angels, there are other divine beings. Uh, here they are called the sons of God. Sometimes they're called the gods, the holy ones, the mount of assembly, the heavenly host, the divine council. All of that to say that these spirit beings are very real. The realm that they occupy is just as real as the one that we occupy. And they have a relationship with God and they pre-exist God creating humanity, according to Job 38. And they were present when God made the world and made us and they worshiped him. All of this to say that God has one reality in two realms, the seen and the unseen realms. And God has a family in the seen realm, the church, and he has a family in the unseen realm. It includes angels and other divine beings. Here's the big idea that we're trying to drive home theologically, and then we'll deal with it very practically. God is always trying to build relationships and make a family. God is always trying to build relationships and make a family, which means that Satan is always trying to break relationships and ruin the family. And that sets us up for um, the first war. So think of all the battles from individual conflicts to geopolitical crisis. Think of all the battles in human history up to the present and then ask, where did this all start? And so if you would be willing, sweetheart, Revelation 12, seven through nine. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. 
And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So this is before sin entered the world. Getting a glimpse into the heavenly realm. We're getting a glimpse, absolutely, into the unseen realm. And so here, this is a glimpse into the unseen realm. There are times that Isaiah, Daniel, uh, John in the New Testament are given glimpses into the unseen realm. They see what's going on. Oftentimes, the clue in the Bible is the appearance of a throne, that God sits ruling and reigning as King of Kings, Lord of Lords on a throne. And when the throne shows up in the Bible, it's someone in the physical realm getting a glimpse into the spirit realm. And so what we're seeing here is a replay of an event that preceded even the creation of humanity and, uh, and the fall of humanity into sin. And what it says here is that war arose in heaven. And so I'll, I'll ask you this, babe, and I, I want to have a little bit of a conversation with you. Most Christians, true or false, seem to believe that as long as they are with godly people in God's presence, that they are protected from demonic satanic attack probably the average view yeah you grew up in a bible believing uh, church your dad was a pastor loved the lord was godly um, but even growing up as a kid was there almost a naivety or an assumption if we're christians we're hanging out with christians we're in god's presence we're with god's people that we're safe that we're sort of protected from harm because because we're in this environment yeah, I think that's fair to say that when you're together with other Christians doing what you're supposed to be doing or loving the Lord or worshiping the Lord, that the enemy isn't present at all. And, uh, and I would say uh, with this as well, most Christians just assume like if we're in God's presence, we're safe. But here it says that war arose in, the in heaven, in the presence of God. Yeah. So you can be in the presence of God and declare war on God. And people do this in church all the time. People do this in prayer meetings. They do this in Bible studies. They do this in Bible college. They do this in seminary. They do this in church leadership. They do this in church staff meetings. You can be in the presence of God with God's people and declare war. And some people do. Satan was the first one to do so in the presence of God. And it says that Michael and his angels fought back. So again, you know, there's two named holy angels, Michael and Gabriel, and then there's Satan, who is the unholy named angel. God doesn't directly involve himself with this. He delegates it to this divine leader, Michael, and there's a fight, and he's called a dragon. So it's, it's that sort of imagery that gives us some real concern and, and, and allows the imagination to awaken. So it says that there was a war. Satan declares war on God, and then he recruits with him other divine beings. So you think of it, not only does Satan declare war, but he's able to recruit angels and possibly other divine beings to war against the God who made them, who has only loved them, only blessed them, only been good to them, only been present with them. But he's the great deceiver, it says, of the whole world. And so it's all part of the great deception. And what that means is that there's always going to be someone who decides it's time to declare war. And as soon as they do, there will always be some people who side with them. And that doesn't mean necessarily that it's godly because here it's Satan and demons who are a faction. With pride at its core. So yeah, so talk about that. I mean, how does pride relate to this first declaration of war on God and every other declaration of war on God ever since. What's the role of pride? Well, he wanted to be God, and he couldn't be. And so he had to be cast away from God. And pride is wanting to be God or better than God. And that's where everything that God creates, Satan counterfeits. So God creates order, Satan counterfeits with disorder. God creates respect for authority, Satan counterfeits with disrespect for authority. God creates humility, Satan counterfeits with pride. Um, God creates unity here. Satan counterfeits with division. And what Satan is always trying to do, he's always trying to put himself in leadership 
and then to rise up in leadership with him, those that are aligned with him. And so just a couple of things that I wanted to share. Uh, number one, every one of us is born in this battle, whether we know it or not. Number two, all of our battles are part of this great war. When Satan gets cast down to the earth, and we'll deal with that in a moment, he doesn't give up the fight. Instead of recruiting divine beings, he starts recruiting human beings. He's enlisting for the army. And uh, number three, the presence of God does not guarantee holiness because you can be in God's presence with a bad heart. And as a result, you could be declaring war on God, even in the presence of God. And then what happens is that Satan always goes after the leader. You're gonna see this pattern. In heaven, he goes after God. He gets cast down to the earth. The New Testament says that a third of the heavenly host or other angels and divine beings came with him. So now there's a spiritual war on the earth. He goes after Adam as the head of humanity. He goes after Jesus as the head of the new covenant church. He goes after Peter as the leader of the disciples. Every single time he is trying to overtake leadership, take down the leader and replace it with new governance. So Satan is always about rebellion, division, pride, autonomy, shadow government, and ultimately a coup. That's what he's always working on. So that being said, um, let's have a marriage discussion. In uh, Genesis two and three, um, you can read it and then we'll discuss it. Genesis 2, 24 through 3, 1. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had, God had made. So Satan is in heaven, loses his war, gets cast down to the earth. Immediately, or at some point thereafter, shows up in the garden. And uh, I believe that this garden of Eden, or garden of delight is what Eden means, it is a place of divine council meeting. Um, what happens in the Bible, we get into this in the, in the Win Your War book, is that um, the divine council is where God's family in the unseen realm and his family in the seen realm, they meet together as one big family. This is where the divine family and the human family meet together in the presence of God. So I'll give you some examples. Um, in Revelation, there are many occasions where John says, I saw heaven open and there was God seated on a throne and surrounded him are these amazing angelic beings and also departed saints who were worshiping him. So John keeps getting these glimpses into the divine council meeting at the unseen realm. Uh, the divine council also came down and met with Jacob in the Old Testament of Genesis, where there was a ladder from heaven. So there's God in heaven, there's the human family in the seen realm, and then the divine family of the angelic and the other divine beings, they go between heaven and earth. And then he says, surely this is the gateway to God. It's the place of divine council. What happens in Genesis, I believe, or we believe, that... Um, that Genesis is reporting and recording the Garden of Eden, which was where the divine family and the human family met together. Mm -hmm. And God is present there. So they're in the presence of God, it says in Genesis two and three. And then also when, so it says here that Satan shows up. A couple of questions for you. Why do you think Satan waited until they were married to show up? Well, because then he could divide more people. Instead of just take one person down, you're taking a legacy down. And so he looks for division in heaven. He waits until there is a covenant of unity between a husband and a wife on the earth, and then he attacks for division. How many single people tend to think that most of their battles are before their marriage, not in their marriage? A lot. They think it's going to be great when they get married and they won't have as many issues. Won't we'll have as many struggles, but as soon as you get married, we like to say after the wedding comes the war. That in your registry, you should put a cup, helmet, <laughs> you know, breastplate, um, some steel-toed boots, and an antibiotic, because the war comes after the wedding. If Satan would have attacked Adam before he was married to Eve, what would the difference be versus waiting until they were married? What's the benefit to waiting? More, peop more people 
that he can take down at once, the better. All of humanity. Because mm-hmm. had Adam sinned, Eve probably wouldn't have married him and the human race would have ended. Wait till they're married, get them both to sin, then have kids who are sinners. Genesis 4, first two kids, one murders the other. And now every human being in the history of the world comes from this marriage and this family. And we're all sinners because of their choice and our choices. And as a result, he was able to take the divided war of heaven bring it to the earth and bring it to every single human being in the history of the world and have them all born on his side of the fight and the war against God. And unless we're born again, we're born on the enemy's side of the fight, divided and separated from God forever. Um, If a serpent right now, sort of, or a dragon, came in, made their way on the stage to have a conversation with you, do you think that your conversation or your reaction would have been the same as Eve's? I mean, I'm (laughs) guessing that I would have been a little shocked. But you could be honest with them. What do you do when you see a spider? (laughs) (laughs) I call you in the room to get it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you run out of the room. So you won't even share a room with a spider. I wouldn't have talked to it. I would have run away from it. Why do you think she had a conversation? I mean, we just read it because we've read it so many times. It's like, well, yeah, then she had a conversation with the serpent dragon. You're like, no, wait a minute. Hit the brakes, pull the car over. Let's talk about this. Well, she would have been used to seeing all kinds of beings and things because the garden was a place of being able to see both realms. So that's... This is our perspective on Genesis 2 and 3. It seems like they were used to being there with God. They're used to being there with each other. And they're used to being there with angels and other divine beings. Because it, uh, it says as soon as they sinned and they were kicked out, a cherub angel was placed with a sword to guard the tree of life. Otherwise, they would have lived together forever separated from God. And so it seems like the divine council meeting spot of Eden, if you go there, you're like, okay, God's there. Yeah, well, we always meet God here. Well, there's divine beings there. Well, yeah, they're, they're always here. Well, we're having a conversation with angels and divine beings. Well, yeah, that's what we do. And I, I would submit to you that that's what we're gonna do in heaven in the kingdom of God. That when heaven comes to earth, all of the angels, other divine beings and human beings as well as the resurrected saints, we're all going to be together. You're going to have conversations with all of these divine beings that are revealed in the scriptures, and it'll be very matter-of-fact and normal for them. So let's talk about Adam and Eve. Satan shows up, and the first thing he does, he declares war on marriage. So for most couples, how many people do they think are in their marriage? Two, husband and wife. If you're a Christian? Three. Three. God. God. The truth is, how many people are in the marriage? Four, because Satan's always coming at you. Four. That's important to know. You have to kick him out. When, uh, when you get hit, when your marriage gets hit, as Adam and Eve did, it's like, well, is it your fault, my fault, or God's fault? Well, if you overlook the possibility of the demonic, the satanic, you could think that either God is evil or your spouse is the devil. And some people do. They come to the conclusion because of the pain of their marriage, either God is evil or my spouse is the devil. Not realizing there's four people in your marriage, the husband, the wife, the Lord, and the enemy of the husband and the wife and the Lord. Talk about um, Eve's sin. Genesis 3, Satan shows up. She's the mother of us all. Adam is the father of us all. What goes wrong for Eve? How does spiritual warfare show up in the life of that woman? And as a result, sometimes of of other women as well. Well, she didn't believe that what God told her, she was created in his image. And so then Satan came along and tried to convince her that she could be like God, but she already was like God. And so she then, she added to the scripture when he said, you know, you can't touch it or eat of it. She's she added to scripture instead of saying, no, I'm, 
I'm going to obey what the Lord says, and he already gave me my identity. And then she engaged in conversation with him. So how much of spiritual warfare, demonic attack for a woman is in the realm of identity? A lot, because the enemy is the father of lies, and so he's constantly trying to get us to believe those lies about ourselves. And if we're, we have a strong identity in being created in God's image, we're not going to believe those lies, and we're going to live out of the identity that he already gave us, not trying to achieve it some other way by what we do or say or how we look. We don't, we don't have to pursue those things because we already have our identity in God. So we like to say that our identity is not achieved by us, but received from God. And we don't live for our identity. We live from our identity. So God made them, like Grace rightly said, I made you in my image and likeness. That's who you are. Live from that. I gave it to you. You didn't achieve it. You received it. It's not something you live for by your performance. It's something you live from by my love. Mm -hmm. Satan shows up, says, you can be like God. You're right, it's a lie. God said, I already told you, I made you in my likeness. And so sin becomes independence from God. It becomes a, a distrust or a mistrust of what God said. And then an adding to the word of God, because God told her don't eat of it. And then she says, well, God said we can't eat of it or touch it. God never said that. How easy is it for any Christian, but you could speak to women in general, to take what the Bible says and then maybe what they heard from somebody or something that their mom told them or something they read in a book or picked up on social media or a blog and add it to it and as a result, undermine it. Yeah, I think it's very easy to do that because if we aren't just going to the Word and reading it as it is and asking the Holy Spirit to teach us through the word and give us insight through the word, then we're adding whatever we want our insight to be, whatever we want it to say to us, whatever someone else wants it to say to us. And that's why we need to be diligent students of the word to know context, to know what God actually said, not just what we think he said. And the Bible in Hebrews and in Ephesians says that the scripture is a sword. It's an offensive military weapon that is strategically designed to take down an enemy. And so you think about it, in our culture, movies, video games, cultural narratives, oftentimes it's a dragon and a dragon slayer. Well, that's the storyline of the Bible. The Bible says that in the end, Jesus comes back riding on a white horse, that he comes with a sword protruding from his mouth, and he comes to make war on the dragon and all who are aligned with him. And it tells us that the scripture really is a sword. And so when Satan comes at us with lies, we fight him with the truth. And what happens here is they lose sight of the truth. And as a result, Satan defeats them and sin enters the world. And so in this as well, um, let's talk a little bit for the women, what spiritual warfare can look like, especially in the context of marriage. Um, What about the man? What was his spiritual warfare, and how did he lose his battle in Genesis 3? And it's the way that men ever since tend to lose our battle. Passivity. Um, He didn't, it says he, she handed him the fruit. He was right there. Um, And so he just stood there. He didn't stop her from talking to the enemy. He didn't correct. He didn't lovingly say, Hey, let's not do that. Yeah, we don't let's do walk dragon away. conversations. Yeah. That's not us. <laughs> um, he just stood there and didn't do anything. And that's the sin of omission. And so for most men, you need to hear this. Sin is not just commission, the bad things we do. It's omission, the good things we don't do. He didn't stand up. He didn't get in the way and say, no, wait a second. God spoke to me first. And said, here are the rules, and honey, I love you, but let's leave now, or don't have this conversation, or serpent, I rebuke you, or hey, that's my wife, not yours, don't you know, take her away from me, and the Lord, he says and does nothing, he's a passive coward. This is how spiritual warfare ends up all the time, because the Bible's not just about what happened, but about what always happens. Satan shows up. <clears throat> And the husband doesn't say or do anything. He's passive, doesn't like conflict, uninvolved, non-emotional, non-relational. The wife says, somebody needs to say and do something. So the New Testament says repeatedly that she was deceived, meaning 
she was trying to help, but it didn't end well. So she's like, okay, well, I'll, I'll step up here. And all of this is undermining the family, the way that God has structured things, and everything craters and collapses. So you men need to know that it's, it's not just what you do, it's what you don't do. And I'll say this very strongly for the men, Satan wanted their marriage and their family, and he wants your marriage and your family. And the moral of the story in Genesis 3 is, if the man won't lovingly, humbly lead his family, Satan will take his place. Absolutely. Satan wanted to take God's place in heaven, and he lost. He comes down to earth. Adam is the head of the human race. He wants to take Adam down. Adam doesn't even put up a fight. Most men don't. Most men don't go to church, their wives do, they don't pray, their wives do, they don't read the Bible, their wives do. They don't spiritually lead the children, their wives do. And all of that is spiritual warfare. And so what kind of position does that put a wife in if she's got a passive husband who's not emotionally, spiritually, relationally engaged? Very difficult because if we are supposed to honor our husbands, it makes it hard to honor them if they're not willing to lead us. We still need to honor them, but it makes it very difficult because a woman wants to be led lovingly and she wants her kids to be led if she has them. And when a man just steps back and lets her fend for herself, I mean, we see in the garden, it caused harm to her and her legacy. It wasn't just about their little family. It create, created havoc for the whole world. By the time you turn the page, one brother murders the other. <clears throat> it goes from were naked in the garden, perfect, to a funeral for one of our two sons, murdered by his brother. <clears throat> From Genesis 3 to Genesis 4, that's the turn of the page. And a lot of times people don't understand by letting Satan and the demonic realm into your family, how quickly things get brutal and ugly. He'll act as fast as he can as soon as he finds a way to get in. That's what he did with this family. That's what he does with every family. That being said, um, who sinned first, Adam or Eve? It's not a trick question. What do you think? <laughs> I think Adam did by not doing anything. So then God, God shows up in Genesis 3. If Eve sins by commission, she does a bad thing. Adam sins by omission. He doesn't do anything. God shows up. Who does he call out for firstly responsible? Adam. Adam. The head of the home. The head of the home. Romans 5, 12 through 21 says that when one man sinned, the whole race fell. He was the head of the human race. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 talks about Adam is the first Adam and Jesus as the last Adam who takes his place and fixes his mess that he's made that we've all contributed to as well. And the point is this, for men, there's a difference between fault and responsibility. And uh, whether or not it is the man's fault, God still wants him to take responsibility to lovingly care for his wife, his kids, and his family. And then, but then some women will read this and they'll say, well, yeah, Satan showed up and Adam failed and everything fell apart. How does God deal with Eve and still hold her accountable for her sin and her decisions? Well, she tried to blame Satan. And God said, no, you are going to have pain in childbearing and you're going to try and rule over your husband. So her consequences are deep as well. And so in that, uh, for a woman, a lot of her pain is going to be around motherhood and marriage. As, and so it's not that it wasn't painful, but now it's really painful. <laughs> and in that as well, for, um, for the woman, she blames uh, her, she blames Satan. Do you remember who, uh, Genesis 3, Adam blames? God for creating the woman, basically. And the woman. Mm -hmm. So Adam's answer is, wow, things really went south fast, God. Let me just run the tape back. Uh, God, you and I were together. Everything was fine. The woman showed up, got crazy. Things just got real crazy fast. Full Jerry Springer episode since this woman showed up. Um, God, you made her. Either the woman is defective. I married the wrong woman. 
or God, you must have made a mistake in this woman. What Adam is trying to do is shift the blame to the woman or to the Lord and then abdicate himself of his responsibility. This is blame shifting. And then Eve is kind of the charismatic Pentecostal gal and she pulls out the devil made me do it. Devil made me do it. And this is what happens, but God holds, this is the concept that we get into of group guilt. God says, Adam, you're responsible for what you did. Eve, you're responsible for what you did. And Satan, you're responsible for what you did. And he does it in that order because Adam was supposed to lovingly inform and lead his family. And they were supposed to exercise dominion over Satan with God-given authority. That's the concept of group guilt. And, and within that, how many marriages probably don't use these categories, but the man is passive, uh, the woman is confused, um, they're adding to the scriptures, um, and they're divided, and they're making excuses and blaming people and things. Sadly, a lot of marriages are that way, and they're stuck in a cul-de-sac that Adam and Eve started. Mm -hmm. So there's a war in heaven, Satan gets cast down. The war immediately comes to marriage and family. And we've had these wars, right? We've been together a while. And these do show up in every marriage and it's inevitable. Um, and you can't have victory because Jesus has defeated Satan. He has disarmed Satan. He's coming again to destroy Satan. So our spiritual authority and victory is through Jesus Christ. So the war is in heaven. It comes to the earth to attack the family and then eventually it moves from God's divine family into God's human family. Just as Satan declared war on God and tried to recruit from his divine family, he comes into the church, God's human family, and he seeks to also recruit people to join the fight with the demons against the Lord. And so this is the war on your church family. God is all about building a family. Satan is all about breaking a family. God's family, Adam and Eve's family, our family, your family, our church family, your church family. And I won't get into all of this. We've got whole chapters on it. But the Bible talks about, again, God creates Satan counterfeits. Use those categories. They're very helpful. They're essential to something called discernment. Um, it says to reject in the Bible that which is evil, cling to that which is good. Um, and so what that requires is discernment. Is this evil or is this good? But the Bible talks about false apostles. These are powerful spiritual leaders who are demonically empowered and lead people astray. False prophets who say things boldly, confidently. Sometimes these are even preachers or book writers or social media influencers, and what they're saying is not in agreement with the word of God. False teachers who come in and you'll think that you're getting the Bible, but you're getting a Genesis 3 satanic version of the Bible where Satan is misquoting the scriptures. He does the same thing in Luke 4 and Matthew 4. He shows up to spiritually attack Jesus and he keeps misquoting, just tweaking, twisting the word of God. False teachers, beware of the latest trendy book that has the new version of Jesus or new version of gender or sexuality or marriage or whatever the case might be. False teaching is always very popular. False doctrines, things that don't agree with scripture and Christian history. And it says this as well, false brothers, people who are in the church, but they're not with the Lord, they're with Satan. And Jesus had this with Judas. So if he has one on his team, we're going to have them on our team. So explain that for those who may not be familiar with this aspect of Jesus' ministry. Yeah, I mean, Judas was in his ministry the whole time, running the books and... Leader? And leading and friends with all the disciples. And then he ended up being the one that betrayed God and was filled with Satan. Um, and so he was close to Jesus the whole time. He was in the presence of Jesus the whole time and still... Uh, followed Satan's orders to him. And what this is, is there's, there's a demonic element that is uh, covert. Um, if, if everybody's sitting in church or sitting in a Bible study or sitting in a staff meeting, I mean, this was Jesus. Jesus had 12 guys in his staff, small staff. And uh, here's Judas who runs the books. He's the CFO, the XP, the CEO. So he's probably viewed as 
one of the most trustworthy. He's running the money. Um, and it says in the scriptures that the whole time that he was the bookkeeper, he was stealing from Jesus. So it's not like Judas was a good guy who had a bad turn. He was overt and then it, excuse me, it was covert and then it became overt. So it's not that his character changed, it is that his character was revealed. We always like to say, you can't lose your salvation, but you can fake it. Judas didn't lose his salvation, he faked it. And then he got exposed. And ultimately, as Gracie said, he was filled with Satan. So the war in heaven and the war in Eden shows up in Jesus' ministry. And he's only got 12 guys, and one of them is filled with Satan and working for the rebellion that started in heaven. And what that means is that every church and all leadership teams at some point are going to have someone that either Satan sent in to cause division and to seek a coup and an undermining of the leader, and or they're going to take someone who is in leadership and try and recruit them for the fight. And, uh, and he talks about false brothers, meaning... They prayed together, they loved each other, they were in the small group, you know, we got baptized together, we went on the mission trip. Families knew each other. Families knew each other, we did a Christmas card all together, and now you're telling me they're sideways? Do you think, and I know we're doing a little bit of speculation in the storyline of scripture, when Judas went completely, what was covert, he, and when he shows up with religious leaders, political leaders, that didn't happen quickly. The Roman government and the Jewish legal religious authorities coming together to murder Jesus, you got to architect and organize that for a long time. Yeah, they built trust together. So they built trust together. They, they showed up with soldiers. They showed up with legal documents. I mean, they had a trial set up. They had a judge waiting in the middle of the night. Judas had plotted this for a very long time. He was very, very covert. He was hidden and then it became overt and exposed. But when Judas went hard, fast, rebellious, do you think there were people in the ministry that were confused or maybe even wondered if he was right? Absolutely. I think it is confusing. If you're you know, claiming to be a Christian or claiming to know slash love Jesus, and then you act like Satan instead, it's very confusing to the church, to leaders. It's hard to understand how that could happen, um, especially thinking of him actually walking with Jesus in the flesh and the blood. Um, just that's really hard to understand, although we're all capable of it. So this is the Bible's language of shepherds, sheep, and wolves. Yeah. <clears throat> Jesus, of course, is the chief shepherd. The disciples are shepherds. Come to find Judas is one of the wolves. Yeah. For sheep, it's really confusing when you find out that one of the shepherds was actually a wolf. A wolf for a sheep is easy enough to spot, but when they start as a shepherd, what the Bible calls a wolf in sheep's clothing, meaning you look at them, they're like, they're a sheep. Oh my gosh, no, no, no. They're a wolf in sheep's clothing. What that is, that's a, that's a wolf with sheepskin on, faking it. Then all of a sudden they earn the trust of the sheep so then they can devour and destroy them. And this includes in the church false elders. It says this in Acts. The, uh, the context in Acts was actually a prophetic word that I got early on in ministry. Uh, we, we were in the midst of planting our first church and um, went to bed. And I had a prophetic dream about somebody was divisive and betraying and deadly and demonic. And I woke up and I, I woke you up and told some of our pastor friends to be praying for us. God revealed a wolf that Satan had sent into our early ministry in the, in the early days, many years ago. And then God spoke to me, Acts 20. And uh, it was as clear as day. And it says in Acts 20 that it was, Paul had been ministering in a city called Ephesus for some years, very successful headquarters. And that he was getting ready to jump on a boat and to leave because God was repositioning to another ministry location. So he called an elder meeting. He called a board meeting. This would be a staff meeting or a departmental head meeting in a large church. Or this would be a presbytery in certain organizations. Um, but he pulls them together and he's looking at them 
And he says, men will arise from your own number, distort the truth and lead many astray. So be on guard and don't fail to remember that I warned you day and night with tears. And then he got on the boat and left. What he literally was saying in the meeting of the leaders of the church was, one of you is Judas, goodbye. Now they're all looking at each other <laughs> in one of the most awkward meetings yeah. of any leadership team ever, which one of us is Judas? Because they all thought they were shepherds and one was a wolf. And God spoke that verse to me and it's just stuck with me ever since. The result is if you don't understand the war in heaven comes to your family and then ultimately comes to your church family, you will end up with something that we'll call church hurt. So this is where I'm just gonna ask you, and I didn't tee you up for this, but honey, I'd love for you to share, even as a pastor's daughter, pastor's wife, your dad planted a church before you were even born, so you grew up in the church, and then you've been doing ministry with me as a senior pastor for half my adult life, 25 years. Um, when these things happen in the church, what happens to the sheep and what is church hurt? They get scattered and hurt and confused like we were talking about. They don't know how to respond because they're trying to follow the leader that says they're leading in a godly way. And then all of a sudden they're confused because the leader does something like Judas does or something similar. And I think I remember that growing up there was a scenario at my dad's church um, and I was um, in elementary school and um, had a close friend and the scenario just played out that in that this family had said some things about my dad that were just untrue, completely untrue um, and divisive. It actually divided his church and his church was not a large church already. So it was, it was damaging. Known. It was like, so your dad's church and he's gone home to be with the Lord and we've named our church, the Trinity church in honor of him. But it, it, the biggest it ever was was maybe 200 people. It was about 300, 300. at its largest. But yeah, it, it divided it. But um, it felt like a big extended family. We lost several key families um, because they believed and had a relationship with the person who said the lie. And so it was very damaging. And I was super confused because I was young. And my dad didn't want to get into the details, which was mature of him. And he wanted to guard um, bitterness and, and hurt um, but I was just very confused, and I lost my friend over it. And, One of your best friends, yeah, right? Yeah, and so um, I just remember not understanding, but God gave me a deep love for the church, and so it didn't make me hate the church, but it just caused a lot of confusion. And, um, and then later the woman actually came back about 20 years later and apologized to my dad mm. for saying the lie that she told. And, and he had already forgiven her, which was beautiful. Um, and so he didn't, he hadn't, held any bitterness in his heart but the damage that it did was so heavy and and we had spent time with these families and so then they just all of a sudden weren't a part of the church and so yeah it's it's deeply hurting and, and people have all kinds of hurt from churches and it's so important not to it's important to remember that that's not who God is the church is full of of sinners and people that need God for healing and and direction in their life and the church isn't God it's where you're supposed to go to be able to experience God and have a relationship with God and his people and unfortunately um, in sin that that can be very distorted and, and hurt people um, but we need to continue to work that through with the Lord and forgive and not desert the church for that. Do you think that Satan uses church hurt to isolate people it's not good to be alone it's like getting a a sheep away from the flock. They're like, well, the flock hurt me, so I'm going to separate from the flock. Well, now you're in greater danger mm -hmm. of Satan, yeah. you know, call him the chief wolf. And there's and the so wolves. much blessing in the church as well. So when you leave the church for church hurt, it ends up being a detriment because you miss out on all the blessing that there is as well. And God grows your character as you go through experiences like that. So Looking back, I can see what I gained in character, how I learned and grew as I persevered. God gave me the ability to persevere through loving the church. And I have my scars, the church has her scars, and we need to work together to, to love each other. Well, because again, if God is trying to build family, the divine family, 
the human family, the church family, and Satan is attacking, seeking to divide uh, each of those families. Jesus said very clearly, a house divided against itself falls down, can't stand up. And that happens in the family and the church family. And so for those who may hear this, I'll give you the close and then ask you to close our time in prayer and thank you for having this uh, conversation with me. For most of the people who hear this, they're not in church leadership. They're, they're not privy to the inside information. They don't know all the facts. All they know is whatever they heard from the person that they trusted as the source of the information. Um, for those that maybe are struggling with church hurt or church bitterness or suspicion toward church leadership and or something was done in the church that was just frankly and simply wrong, either through the flesh or the demonic, and or they've isolated themselves or sort of separated from God's people, just out of your heart in the moment, what would your encouragement be for them? Well, like I said, the church isn't a representation all the time of, of God and his character. God is a father and he wants us to be a part of a family in community, learning, growing, just like your, your family, your biological family is messy. There's a lot of messiness in the church. And so I would encourage those people to heal up, to forgive, to work out whatever they can. Sometimes you can't always go back and um, talk to the people or know every detail of the situation, but, but the Lord and the Holy Spirit can help you work that through. I mean, don't believe all the things that you read or hear. Don't participate in gossip. Don't you know, follow the internet about <laughs> church leaders. I just think it's so easy to stand back and judge church leaders and if you haven't been a part of church leadership, you don't understand how much attack is constantly coming and the temptations that you're constantly resisting by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I would encourage people not to stand back and judge and or leave the church, but to actually participate, try and bless your leaders, pray for your leaders, um, and, and do good to them. You close our time of prayer. Thanks, babe. Dear Lord, thank you so much um, that you reveal in your scriptures that there is spiritual warfare um, that we can guard against. Thank you that we have the Holy Spirit um, to protect us from the evil spirit um, and, and Satan himself. Lord, I pray that we would walk um, alongside the Holy Spirit for discernment, for wisdom. I pray that as a church, as Christians, the big church, um, that we would represent Jesus in his life, that we would love each other, that we would forgive each other, that we wouldn't let the enemy um, cause footholds in our life, that we would quickly um, flee from his tactics, Lord. Um, I pray for healing for anyone that has church hurt, Lord, that they wouldn't let that be a reflection of who you are as their heavenly father, but that they would let you love them and heal them and walk through um, that process with them so that they can rejoin uh, that family and be healthy in that family. So thank you for all these opportunities in the word that you give us um, and that you help us to guard against the enemy's tactics in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, Ben.